right, so how we doing? We're good. Okay, I heard David over there. He's, he's good. Everyone else uh, is a little suspect still. It's all right. But I got to ask you a question to start this off. How many of you, when you left here last week, went and looked for the book of Hezekiah? Some, some of you did, right? Some of you were like, ah, so... I don't know what Ronnie was doing. He's probably trying to make sure you're paying attention. Either that or he just forgot the name. You probably know the answer to that question. Ronnie has a little trouble with names. But Hezekiah is just a, a fictitious book that we use when we uh, like to quote things that aren't necessarily biblical, but yet they sound good, right? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Hezekiah chapter 1, verse 3, okay? So if you didn't know, the other one that people like to use is maybe second or first opinions. Um, to also describe the same thing, but it's not real. Actually, we're going to be in, the, in a book, and I want to be completely honest with you because this morning, I, it, was, it, it wasn't brought to my attention, but I finally looked it up and realized that I'd been saying it wrong the whole time. We are going to be in the book of Habakkuk, not Habakkuk. So if I fumble over that name, that is exactly why. I've been calling it Habakkuk for so long and just this morning, I realized I've been pronouncing it wrong the entire time. So, everyone say it with me. Habakkuk. There we go. So, not Habakkuk, but Habakkuk is where we will spend our next four weeks. I wanted to preach an entire month, but I didn't realize October was a five-week month. So, Ronnie will be rejoining us uh, from the pulpit on Halloween. He also told me to let you know that we're going to try costumes that morning. So see him about that information. But Ronnie will be rejoining us on the fifth Sunday. I'm looking forward to him obviously being back in the saddle. I'm also looking forward to this opportunity at um, unpacking a book. Habakkuk was a temple musician prophet and a contemporary of Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. So if you go read some of their work, they will sound awfully similar. Um, the book is actually a collection of oracles written at the end of the 7th century during a dramatic political change. We will get into that dramatic political change when we get into the first four verses. But some of you might be asking, right, when, when, when we announced that I'm going to be preaching out of Habakkuk, you were probably like, is this like Hezekiah, right? Is this really a book in the Bible, right? It's not a book that we hear about very often. It's not a book that we hear quoted or taught very often, uh, but yet it is a book in the Bible. And so I want to give you the reasons why I chose this book. The first one is I love expository preaching. I've talked this, about this before. I think the best style for preaching is to take a verse or a set of verses and to let them dictate what you preach. A lot of times there's another type of series called topical preaching, which has its place where you pick a topic and you develop and build out a series from there. But when you have the opportunity to grab a book and start it from, from cover to cover or from start to finish, you get to see things that you would never see before. And you don't get to just see them by themselves, you get to see them in their context. It's a word that we use quite a bit. And so because I wanted to do that in this series, my, my options were very limited. If you asked me to preach a four-week series out of the book of Romans, I would scratch my eyeballs out. I would throw myself off a cliff. Like, it would not be a good situation. Actually, a few years ago, Ronnie asked me to preach out of Romans 8, 9, and 10 in one sermon. And if you know what is in those three chapters, you know how hard that sermon was to preach. How could I possibly 
cover everything that is in those three chapters in, unfortunately, my, my normal time in 45 minutes, right? So how could I possibly unpack those things? So it limited me very quickly as to what I was going to be able to preach from. Now, obviously, I could have went to the New Testament, pastoral epistles, right? I could have went to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John or 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude. There's a lot of books in the New Testament. But this kind of brings me to my second point. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from what you have learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Here we go. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for every good work. If we truly believe that all scripture is God-breathed, then there should be no books of the Bible that are off-limits for us. And so when we have the option to preach out of something familiar, sometimes we should, or even learn out of a book that's familiar, sometimes we need to run to that book that maybe is less familiar. And so as I kind of started to gather information about these specific books using study Bibles and other resources, I just kind of was drawn to this book, and I think there will be some obvious reasons why once we get into it. And so without further ado, let's get into it. If you have your Bible, open up to Habakkuk chapter 1, or if you have your device, obviously uh, pull that out. I think it's really important, I like to say this, that you follow along as much as you can, because that gives you an opportunity to highlight, to underline, to ask questions, and to, as we build on this series for the next three weeks following today, uh, kind of, again, gives you some context for what we're looking at. But of course, if you don't have any of those things, the words will be on the screen. As you're turning there, I titled this series, God, well, I, Faith in the Darkness, and I titled this sermon itself, God is Present in the Darkness. Now, of course, any illustration, any metaphor, any time you try to describe something, it will fall short in some way, shape, or form, right? Mainly because we're broken people and Everything about us is broken, and so when we try to describe things, unfortunately, that is broken as well. But God is present in the darkness. So kind of as I unpack these points, I think we're going to see exactly why I titled this sermon that way, um, and we'll kind of see the theme that's going to be running throughout the course of this book. And so we're going to start off in verse 1. If you don't know, I like to read and unpack, so we'll read some of the verses, we'll stop along the way, and we'll make some of our points. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. First kind of funny point here is that most of the time they would hear the word, word of God. There was a vision associated with this hearing when it came to Habakkuk. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and, how, and, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the, the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The dramatic polit political change that I referenced earlier was talking about a king, an actual king you can read about in the Old Testament, named Je King Jehoiakim. He ruled on behalf of Egypt in Israel, from 609 to 605, and then when things changed from on behalf of Babylon or the Neo-Babylonian Empire from 605 to 601, under his reign, he killed innocent people who opposed him, like most kings did, 
He refused to pay laborers. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 23 or Jeremiah 22. Under his reign, prophets, priests, and administration committed adultery and abused their authority. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 23. So when you hear Habakkuk talking about some of the things that he's talking about, he's being, being very specific to what is actually taking place in Israel at the time. And he's going, God, why are these things taking place? You should be doing something about this. He had Uriah the prophet killed for prophesying about Jerusalem's fall in Jeremiah 26. And he burned Jeremiah's handwritten prophecy in Jeremiah 36. And these are just the things that we have recorded from him. He was a bad dude. He was a bad dude like a lot of the kings that reigned in Israel for a lot of their history. But what we have to understand here is Habakkuk was not, was not just crying out why because he was frustrated about these things. He was, he, it was more than just a cry for help. It was an honest lament and questioning of God. When you understand how bad the political and social climate really was, you understand just how honest and hopeless this lament and questioning really was. The tone here is not just sadness or frustration. It's anger. It's bitter. It's mocking. It is filled with something that, man, we have a really hard time dealing with sometimes, and that's doubt. How could a good God let these things happen? Anyone ever asked that question, especially recently? Habakkuk was asking these very same things a long time ago. Read verse 2. Again, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? He's not saying you're not hearing. He's saying you, you're, you're like turning a blind eye to what is taking place. You're not saving these people. This violence is taking place and you're standing there. What are you doing? You make me see this iniquity all around me and you just idly, you just, you're just idle. What's the deal? Now, here's a question. How many of you have struggled with doubt in your relationship with Christ? Doubt is kind of a funny thing in the church because it's not something that we like to talk about. It's a lot like sin, right? We don't like to talk about it. We like to struggle alone, and the problem with that is it never leads to anywhere good. It just doesn't. But here's what we have to understand. Doubt is very much a part of the Christian journey in a fallen world. It's not just a part, it's a part of the biblical story that we read over and over and over again. We don't even have enough time to cover how many people throughout history, throughout the scriptures, doubted God, but yet God still used them. In Genesis 16 through 18, Abraham and Sarai doubted that God would provide for them a child. I'm going to give you so many descendants, they're going to outnumber the stars. <laughs> you know how old I am? In John 20, we see a disciple, a man that walked with Jesus, heard him talk, say these things were said about him. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Obviously, Jesus had just resurrected. He visited the disciples. Thomas was not with them. And so he told, he told this to the other disciples. We have seen the, they, they, or the other disciples told him this. We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in those marks and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them this time. 
Although the doors were locked, always a funny, this is, Jesus is just a funny guy. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Whoa, where, where the heck did Jesus come from? But he showed up and said, peace be with you. And he looked right at Thomas, knowing what he had said. I'm adding that, that's not there, but you get what I'm saying. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place them in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Uh, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet still believe. How many of us would be Thomas? I would be Thomas. I would 100% be Thomas. You're telling me a man rose from the dead? There ain't no way. I need to see it. But yet sometimes, I mean, he gets his name Doubting Thomas like none of us wouldn't be the same exact way. And one of my favorite stories in Mark chapter 9, verse 22 through 26, uh, Jesus uh, is actually, he shows up on the scene. The, the, the disciples are having trouble healing this particular kid. And uh, Jesus starts talking to the father. And the father responds to him and he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... Do you know who you're talking to? If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. I hear what you're saying, I believe you can do it, but I just watched these guys try to do it, and I don't, I'm not sure now, right? I'm not sure what's gonna happen here. I'm not sure, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to, to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out. I believe, help my unbelief. Doubt is a part of the Christian journey in a fallen and broken world. It's just gonna be present. And so this kind of brings me to my first point, and I kind of added a tagline to the end of it, so you won't see all of it up there, but you can listen. So, doubt is not the enemy, but it is often a symptom of something else going on. Symptoms are funny, right? I don't know about you, but how many of you avoid the doctor at all costs? I hate going to the doctor. I, like, hate it, Okay. And so actually, uh, it, this was years ago. Uh, Miss Juliet Bullock was still here. I remember Jared and I were painting her house um, one spring. And I had started to get sick. I started to run a temperature. Um, it was around my son's birthday. And I kind of let this go on for a few days, working outside while, while having probably the flu. Um, and I started to feel really terrible, right? I started to have congestion. Eventually it stopped and it started to get into my ears. And one night I laid down in my bed, and all of a sudden, this eardrum ruptures, and fluid just starts coming. It was a bad deal, okay? This side starts hurting. My parents were scheduled to leave the next morning. I wake up early to see them out. They go out the door. I sit down in my chair in my living room, and I just, I start crying <laughs> straight up. It broke me, right? And my wife finally looks at me and says, you know, you could, you could go to the doctor, you, you, could, you could go maybe get some help. And, uh, and so finally, I let my pride, put my pride aside, and I went to the doctor. 
I walk in there. Who knows how long it took me to get seen? Actually, I don't think it took that long, thankfully. But I get back there. They start looking at me. And they kind of step back and they go, why'd you wait so long to come in here? I was like, I don't know, right? This is, a lot, this is how a lot of us handle doubt. There's other things that we handle this way, but this is a, a lot of times how we handle doubt, right? We feel it rising up within us, but we don't know what to do with it. And I'm going to get to a little bit as to the reason why I think that is. But we don't know what to do with it, so we just avoid it. We shove it down deep. We treat it a lot like men treat their emotions, right? And then eventually they're crying at a commercial because they don't know how to deal with their feelings, right? So that's how we treat doubt a lot of times. Here's the crazy thing. I go see the doctor. They give me drugs, antibiotics. I don't know what they gave me. I took it, though. And I was feeling better in like two days. It's crazy. Why, why do I do this to myself? But you know what, though? I haven't been to the doctor since, I don't think. So it's just, I don't know. It's a, it's a crazy world that we live in. But, but many of us treat doubt a lot like this. And as I was kind of doing some research on why Christians doubt a lot of times, I, I came across, a, there's a guy that I really, really like to listen to. He, he, was, he kind of transformed, uh, his teaching transformed uh, my life back in, uh, in college. And so I found an old sermon of his on, on doubt, and it had nothing to do with Habakkuk, but it was a really, really solid series on doubt. And so he, he kind of listed three reasons, and I think he hit the nail on the head, especially in my own life. I can definitely tell that this, is, this was part of the, the reasons why I've, I've struggled with doubt before. The first one is probably the most, is the most simple, but it's the most terrifying. And that is this, that there's many of us that don't actually have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to say it again. There's many of us that don't actually have a relationship with Jesus. And so you doubt because you should doubt. Okay, plain and simple. Following Jesus is not just a preference that we mark on, a, on, a, on an informational packet or when we're applying for you know, our ability to vote. Or It is so much more than that. It is so much more than that. And if we sat down and tried to get to the bottom of why you might doubt, we would come to the conclusion that you don't really hate sin, you don't love holiness, you don't seek the Lord when you're trying to figure out how you should submit or direction that you should take. It's just, it's just a, a check in the box. And in Matthew chapter 7, there's a bunch of disciples, we've talked about this verse before, that came to Jesus and said, didn't I do all of these great things in your name? And we're not talking about little things, we're talking about prophesying, we're talking about healing, we're talking about things that many of us would say, that dude gets it. And Jesus said, depart from me, I don't know you. So, if you're doubting... And I just described, if you were honest about your relationship with Jesus, then I think the, the, the next step is pretty obvious. You need to submit to Jesus. You need to enter into that relationship. The second reason, and this is one that I struggle with, and I've talked to a lot of my brothers and sisters about this. We have a really hard time believing the gospel. And what I mean by that is that we don't have to earn our way into heaven. We have a really, I have a hard time with that one, right? We live in such a results-driven culture, 
that we got to have these results. We want to see these results. And so when we don't see them, all of a sudden, it becomes part of this. We get this angst inside of us, like, how can God really accept me? How can God really love me if I can't even get this done? But Ephesians 2 says that it is a gift of God so that no man may boast. You didn't earn this. He freely gave it to you. And some of us are in that spot. And I'm, I'm, I'm first to raise my hand. That's one that I struggle with quite a bit. The third one, in this one, we, we try to pigeonhole this answer, but I promise you it's a lot broader and covers a lot more than we might think. We have some, some underlying sin issue that needs to be dealt with. And we always run to the big ones, right? Lust or, or materialism or something like that. But what about finding comfort or joy or identity in things other than Christ? Sometimes really good things, right? Sometimes it's our kids, right? Sometimes it's a, a hobby or a passion. But those things are going to bring you momentary comfort, momentary joy. And what God has to offer you is so much greater or like, honestly, Habakkuk. I would say if, that, if I had to try to diagnose from the little bit that we have from him, that is probably where he's at. God, why does the world look this way? You should be doing something about this. Are you even going to be there when I'm done here? Are you actually real? Or, is this, is, or what are we doing here? Right? How could you let these things happen? And so his comfort, his frustration got the better of him. And that faith that he had seen God do things in the, in, the his, in the history of Israel and probably in his own life was long forgotten. But the good news is God answers him. He just doesn't leave him there. Habakkuk chapter 5, or chapter 1, there is no chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. You can actually go read. Paul quotes this verse in Acts chapter 13 when he's talking to the Pharisees about the coming judgment that is going to come for them because they're refusing to submit to Jesus. They're refusing to accept what he's done for them. I would underline this verse if you wanted to. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. It's an important note because that's where we're going to make our point, but... That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gathered captives like sand, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh, they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and they go on, guilty men whose might, whose own might is their God. The first thing I want you to notice about these verses is this, is there anything missing from these verses that you would expect to be there? It's kind of a tricky question because I know and you don't know, but some of you might get it. I would expect God to rebuke Habakkuk, honestly. Habakkuk literally questioned him, and not just questioned him, but doubted him. 
God, where are you? Are you even there? Do you see what's happening? In Job chapter 29, Job questioned, or I guess reminisces about a time where he felt like God really cared about him. And this is how God responded to him in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And for the next three chapters, he lays into Habakkuk, asking him questions about the cosmos and things that take place on earth, and Habakkuk had no answer. So why didn't he rebuke him? You want know why I think he rebuked? Because he was right. Not that God was, God was standing idly by, but he was right that the world was falling apart. At least Israel was. He agonized over what was happening to the righteous along with Habakkuk. Now, granted, Habakkuk has so little perspective on what's taking place that God says, you, you, don't even, you wouldn't know what I'm doing even if I told you. You wouldn't even know what I'm doing even if I told you. And what he's referring to there is what he says in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldean dynasty, or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, lasted from the rise of power in 626 to the invasion of Persia in 539 B.C. This dynasty lasted 80 years. 80. It's a small number. Let's put it that way. There's people in here that are older than that number. The Neo-Babylonian Empire became the most powerful state in the world after defeating the Assyrians at Nineveh in 612 B.C. And here's the thing. In the words of John Calvin, they were going to bring about judgment on Israel, not by their own instinct, but by the hidden impulse of God. Eighty years. When, when he was writing these words... They were, 20 years before he wrote these words, they wouldn't have known who the Neo-Babylonian or the Chaldean Empire was. That's how short-lived their rise to power was. You could literally make the argument that the whole reason that they rose to power was to punish Israel. 80 years. That's not long at all when you're talking about building a military army, conquering nations. That is nothing. But God raised them up to punish Israel and here's the point that I need you to see here. God reigns supreme. He reigns supreme. That is not a kind of descriptive statement. That is an absolute statement. In the words of one of my commentators, it says this. It is indeed, this is a lot here, so make sure you're listening. It is indeed remarkable to note the explicitness of the announcement concerning the designated instrument of God's judgment. The Lord's control over the nations is so great that he orders the rise and fall of them according to his own purposes. He may choose to disperse his people among the heathen as a way of claiming for his populace from all nations, yet this dispersion will occur in perfect coordination with time in which his own people are ripe for judgment because of their persistent rebellion over the centuries. 
God reigns supreme over all nations. The Neo-Babylonian Empire lasted but a blip on the radar when you compare it to ancient Greece, ancient Persia, previous Babylonian Empire, or Rome. A blip, and yet God raised them up for the specific purpose of casting judgment upon Israel. Habakkuk forgot about that. It's such a simple, simple, simple truth that I think we often forget about. That in the midst of a world that doesn't make any sense, God reigns supreme. He reigns supreme. What does that mean? It doesn't matter who holds office. It doesn't matter if Kim Jong-un wants to say he is the supreme ruler. It doesn't matter who's president, king, ruler, council, parliament, judge, civil entity. There's only one that gets the title of supreme, and he is the one true God. You cannot forget that when you face things in this world. Because if you do, you're gonna find yourself in a place of doubt and you're not gonna know what to do with it. But remember though, if you do find yourself in a place of doubt, we cannot ignore it because God is present in the darkness both when you doubt or things don't seem to be going the way you think that they should. God reigns supreme and he is present when we don't think that he is. I'm gonna be honest with you, I always struggle with how to conclude sermons, mainly because like, there's not a written conclusion in the text. I have to come up with that, right? And so the question that I ask myself is how have I dealt with these issues that I've seen in my own life? How, how have I dealt with these things? The first one is obviously obvious. We've talked about doubt and how, man, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you need to make sure that you do. You need to ask God to change your heart. You need to pull somebody aside and you need to have a conversation with them about what that might look like. And you need, to, you need to make that decision. It is the best decision that you will ever make because it gives you assurance and trust that transcends anything the world has to offer you. The second thing is when you're having trouble remembering what Jesus did for you, the good news is we're getting ready to celebrate that week in and week out. We get a chance to take communion and refocus, recenter, and go, you know what? I am, a, I am a broken person, and God's holiness doesn't align with my brokenness. And so, God, even though I try to follow and serve you and I try to earn my way into heaven, I know that I will never be able to do that. And it is only by your blood that I am able to do that. Take these times seriously. Make sure that we have people in our corner that can remind us of these things. Honestly, if you want to do yourself a favor, go memorize Ephesians chapter 2. I reference that chapter so much because it is the the easiest, most condensed gospel presentation that really covers everything, I think, in the whole of Scripture. At least, again, I just run to it. And the third one is, man, if you're dealing with a sin issue and you know it, there's, there's only a handful of ways out of that, and one of them is confession. You have to confess that, and then you have to turn from it. We can't keep pursuing the same things. But here's kind of where this all, I think, rises and falls, right? God has given us some very specific things that help us to live this life that we're in. One is obviously his son, Jesus, So we have to be in that relationship. Two is the spirit. When we enter into that relationship with him, 
that spirit indwells within us and guides us and convicts us and leads us, and we have to be willing to embrace that. And the last one is the church. Guys, this is a family. Is it messy sometimes? Absolutely. I can look out here and I know all the messiness because I've seen it, I've dealt with it, I've been a part of it, and I'm okay with that. I still show up week to week, and I know you guys do too. But the thing is, we have to be in a relationship with our family that actually causes us to grow. Some of you walk in, walk in and out of here, and you are not deeply known by anybody. Nobody knows who you are. And when I say knows who you are, they might know your name. They might know what you do. But they don't know you. They don't see what's taking place inside of here. And I'm not saying that you need to get up here and share that with everybody, but you need to find some people in this room. God has given you these people in this room to be your family, to come alongside you when you're doubting, when you're dealing with sin, when you're seeing the world fall apart and you don't know how to deal with it. He's given you these people to love you and to tell you things that you don't necessarily like all the time. But I can't make you do that. You understand that? We could put on every program you could think of, and that's not going to change whether or not you step out and build those relationships. That is something you have to do. And, it, and I'm not going to act like that's easy. For some of us, that's a really hard, really scary thing to do. But I will tell you that every person here that has built relationships like that has walked through that very scary place, has dealt with those very messy situations. And I promise you they have come out, come out better on the other side. I promise you most of them, um, hopefully all of them, wouldn't change that or trade that for anything. So when you're dealing with doubt, when you're struggling with the darkness, make sure you're relying on the things that God gave you, both that relationship, that spirit, in his church. Because man, those things are transformative beyond anything you could ever imagine. So we're going to go into a time of communion here. And man, I want you to think about these things.